My name is Chris Cherry. I used to be a spy. My name is Brie Castellini. I used to have a boat named Gumby. Oh, and this is Burn Notice. The <laughs> weekly rewatch the USA television masterpiece Burn Notice about Michael Weston, a spy. Not a goat, sadly. Throughout this podcast, we will be rating each episode on whether it is A, an episode of television, B, a great episode of television, or C, a great episode of Burn Notice. If you want to know what complicated calculations go into these ratings, wait until the end where we'll explain them. Also, if you or anyone you know knows Jeffrey Donovan, please get in touch. You can send us questions, suggestions, compliments, and no criticism of any kind at burnnoticedpodcast at gmail.com or to our Twitter at burnnoticedpod. And always, that is burnnoticed with a D, like the name of our podcast, Brie Castellini, tell me about this goat. Uh, well, we had two goats. So when I was five years old, we got back from Disneyland. The only time uh, up to, you know, like a couple of years ago that I'd ever been to a Disney associated place. Uh, mm-hmm. So we went to Disneyland. We drove back. And on our way back into town, we bought two pygmy goats. I do not know if this was the plan prior to our trip, but it became the next 15 years of our lives. So we got two tiny baby kid, uh, pygmy goats. My brother got the boy. His name was Gumby. I got the girl. I named her Flower because at the time I was five years old and I liked the movie Bambi. Um, And I liked the little rabbit whose name was Flower. So we had Flower and Gumby. Flower died much earlier and like kind of went crazy after a couple of years. We're not really sure what happened, but like her eye got fucked up somehow. So she was like blind in one eye. She had like one really blue cloudy eye that she couldn't see out of. And then for like the last four or five years of her life, she had a hysterical pregnancy that she is. She was not pregnant. They were both fixed immediately, but she had fully bloated udders for like six years. Just always bloated. So anytime she tried to run around, it was just these giant milk sacks like flapping around on her. And she was very irritable and was like constantly attacking people. So she died. But Gumby was my boy. We would take him for walks. Like we had a leash. He acted like a dog. Like, and he understood human speech. So like I would come outside to feed our actual dogs and I'd have his food for him. And he'd be like in the very back of the yard. And I'd be like, Gumby, it's food time. And so he'd look up and start to come. And then he would just like stay where he was. And he kind of look at me and I'd look back at him and I was like, you know, I'm not coming out there, right? Like you have to come here to get your food. This is where the animals eat. And so he'd come a little bit further and then he'd stop and he'd like baa at me. And then we'd have an exchange again. And eventually he would come eat his food. He also knew how to use the dog door. And so sometimes we'd come back and he'd be in the garage just like eating things. He also used to uh, like fight our chickens. <laughs> he, uh, the, we had a male chicken named Easter who had like tiny animal disease in that like he thought he was a much bigger animal than he was he was a very small rooster and what was the name of the rooster his name was easter because we got him on easter (laughs) we thought he was gonna die Because he was Isn't very small. Easter, though? Oh, no. Easter was a month ago. Never mind. Yeah. E- Easter was like a long time ago, my friend. I don't know when things are. Anyways. But yeah, so the he... People that, were talking rooster... about Jesus on Twitter. <laughs> oh, yeah, they were. He has he risen. Exactly. And so I thought maybe it was Easter. He, just, he hit snooze and it's taken him a little longer to rise than usual. Didn't have enough yeast. <laughs> Anyway, tell me about Easter the chicken. But, and but yeah, Gumby Easter, the goat. Easter the rooster would fly at Gumby the goat with his feet and like you know flap at him and like attack him. And Gumby would like rear up and like headbutt him. And so like they would meet in the middle, chicken feet to goat head, and it like they would do this for hours. And it was so cute because like they they never hurt each other. They were just sort of like wrestling. 
you know, boys will be boys. And it was just very charming and very sweet. Uh, and Gumby lived to be like 15 and pygmy goats are only supposed to live to like nine or 10. And the only reason he died is because he was so old that his married. tiny little goat legs couldn't carry his giant body anymore. And he just sort of wasted away because like we couldn't oh. just be around there to like feed him constantly. Oh, no. So he was just like, he just kind of like, he would have kept living. He had the same attitude the whole time. But like, you know, by the time he died there, like he just, he couldn't do anything for himself anymore. And we couldn't. What a horrifying just... <laughs> story of goat death. I think he was fine. I think he was eating no, and happy. No, but also and... flour. I mean, yeah, flour, flour definitely got a raw deal. Flour, flour kind of went off the deep end. But yeah, so like there's pictures of me as like a teenager, like wrestling with Gumbly, Gumby on the grass. Cause like he would also headbutt us, but like, you know. He was a little goat, so it wasn't, flower, it wasn't that though. bad. <laughs> I feel yeah. compassion for this, like, this goat that life did not show compassion to. <laughs> yeah, I, I, grew, I grew up on a farm. I had from this story. They, the goats did kill our rabbits. So, like, you know, they 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 got a little bit coming to them because they used to when they were really little. We also had rabbits and they just like headbutted the rabbits into the house one too many times and the rabbits died of internal injuries oh my god (laughs) animals animal life is just horrifying it's a goat eat rabbit world chris it is anyway do you want to talk about burn at us now i guess it's an alfredo barrios jr episode but i will say on the record probably one of my favorites honestly yeah like uh, we'll get to it um this episode season five episode 10 army of one aired on August 25th, 2011. It was written by Enemy of the Pod, Alfredo Barrios Jr., and directed by Tanya McKiernan. This is the first of two Burnotus episodes she's directed, and she's directed a bunch of other stuff. Like, she directed, like, Supergirl and, like, a whole yeah, bunch of Yeah, she's a shows. pretty, like, yeah, she's, she's been, she's done a lot of TV directing. A lot and of TV directing. Good for directing. her. Good for her. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that she directed an episode of The Magicians called Cello, Squirrel, Daffodil, which is, like, pretty good. It's a pretty good episode. It's fine not my favorite but i'd be I, remiss if i did not mention it i i would be remiss if i did not mention that i truly could not get past like the first 12 episodes of magicians i, I tried i really i invested I a lot i couldn't and i respect I couldn't that. do it but i have been what have i oh i've been watching a netflix original called marcella with anna friel and i have a lot of feelings about it it's marcella? it's a it's called it marcella it's in set in london uh and it's about like a detective essentially but like the first season she has like been retired roughly from detectiving uh for many years because she was raising her family but then her husband abruptly leaves her and so she decides to go back to work and she becomes a little bit more involved in the case than she anticipated because one of the people who is murdered in this serial killer case that she's helping investigate is the pregnant girlfriend of her husband and there's this whole bunch of stuff that goes on and so it's very interesting because she's basically like hunt serial killers and so there's three seasons we've only seen two so far but like in both of the seasons when we have like a new serial killer like the way that it's structured it seems to be very similar to how a lot of british detective dramas are structured which is it's a very ensemble and so even though we have like our primary detective like viewpoint character we get like a lot of scenes of people who are sort of tangentially related to the case or sometimes we'll get introduced to people and we're like i don't know how they're involved at all but eventually they like 
it connect with one of the characters we do know. And so like the web starts to sort of fill out and it's a cool way of like doing a detective show because there's just so much going on. And like, there's a lot of just like mini arcs happening that kind of keep it moving, especially if the, the actual investigation is sort of stalled. The problem, at least in this show is that they drop threads a lot. So like in season one, there's this whole thread about this dude, this like corporate, like spy slash, assassin technically and he has ms so like there's a couple of scenes where this guy is like you know he looks down and he's found that he's pissed himself because like his ms is causing incontinence and the ex-husband of marcella of anna friel accidentally pays him to kill someone and then they have to pay he has to pay him again to like cover up that he's killed someone and then somebody starts investigating that and then it never comes up again like a dude is murdered by this guy with ms then we never hear from the guy with MS again. And the guy who got murdered, it just doesn't come back. Like it's just I mean, nothing happens with that. the third season yet, right? Well, but see what, what happens in season two is that she basically like, uh, the, another thing about the character of Marcella is that she has blackouts occasionally in moments of high stress and like, can't remember what she's done. And so like for the first half of season one, you kind of think that she killed the husband's ex-girlfriend or the husband's girlfriend. She right. didn't, but she did move and bury the body. It's a whole thing. But so like season two is sort of about her like, figuring out the root cause of her blackouts and it has to do with like she accidentally killed her baby and she didn't remember it like it's basically one of those scenes where like she you know she she finally remembers what happened because she knows her baby's dead obviously baby's been dead for years but uh, she's been having blackouts ever since but then she finally remembers like through hypnosis that like she the baby was crying and she just couldn't handle it anymore and so as she was like holding the baby like trying to get it to calm down she kind of smothered it against her but she is like hasn't remembered that but so once she does remember that at the end of season two some stuff happens and then she basically like fucking leaves her life and uh is declared dead because of a mix-up of dna and then at the very end of the season some guy comes up to her and he's like hey we could use a recently dead detective to like come work for me at this super covert something so i'm pretty sure season three doesn't have anything to do with seasons one and two and there's also some threads in season two that don't get wrapped up like there's this whole plot line with this lesbian couple who both work for a company of one of the suspects and like they really want to have a kid and one of them like helps out the person in like the company that we think is a suspect like do an illegal thing so that they can make money to like do ibf again and then that just gets dropped. I don't know if they have a kid. <laughs> I don't know if they stay together. But, like, nothing happens with that plot line. They d- we just, like, stop hearing from them once we realize that they're not the real suspects. Here's the thing. You just said IVF, in vitro fertilization, right? Yeah. I heard IBS. <laughs> they have to pay for her to have bad, bad shits. But, yeah, so it's this. It's, it's like, very it's, interesting. This is a show about shitting. It's yeah, it's it's very interesting because like the show is very good. I enjoy it, and obviously Anna Friel is incredible. You know who I'm talking about, right? Yeah, Lady she was. Uh, yeah, she's Chuck. Yeah, she's Chuck. Uh, so it's like it's a good she was show. Chuck it's very on the show interesting. Chuck. <laughs> but like the show, in in its attempt to like you know keep us guessing about who the murderer is, like they just introduce us to all of these people whose plot lines ultimately go nowhere, and that's very frustrating because like the, it's an intricate detective drama, and I guess it's fair that sometimes you like follow a lead and it doesn't go anywhere, but like as a narrative, it's not super satisfying, especially because there is like the the ex husband kind of commissioning multiple murders, like feels like. Like, it should come back. But it just doesn't. Like, it's mentioned in, like, a throwaway 
throwaway line at the very beginning of the second season and then it's never addressed again and then the ex-husband is basically not in the show for like most of the season which is great because he sucks ass but like it's just it's very strange it's super super strange what they consider like important continuity that carries over and what they don't and the fact that like it sounds like it's like broad church but also the good wife uh, it's not really the good wife. The good wife is very much a legal procedural, and this no, but is I mean, not like that. premise wise, maybe yeah. The w- woman goes back to work after raising a family. Have you yeah. watched the good wife? And like the ex and the ex husband's like bad, right? And they're like a bad ex husband and the good wife. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Despite her being a good wife, he's a very bad husband. Exactly, bad hu- <laughs> bad husband, good wife. But like, it's she. The the sort of difference is that like. Marcella is not a procedural at all. Like, they're well, investigating no, I mean, yeah, one I'm, serial killer. I'm talking about, obviously. That's what I was saying. Like, the good wife meets broad church, because it sounds like it's more structurally like broad church or sure, something. Sure, sure, sure. But yeah, it's 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 interesting. And it's I've been thinking a lot about, like, mystery plotting, obviously, because, like, that's... I've been going all in on mystery writing. Yeah. I think that that's the easiest sort of trajectory for me to try and do you are something. You mystery writing. I am good at mystery writing, and I enjoy it a lot. Like, I've, I've always written mysteries. If you really follow the thread of my life, it's like, oh, yeah, I should have just been doing mysteries the whole time. Even Brain Season 1 is a mystery. Remember when you were, like, coming up with the plots for cozy mysteries? Yeah, I do. That is a thing that I used to do. And yeah. then I got fired because I made too many of the names non-white, and I refused to change them. And they were like, okay, well, we don't really need your help anymore. And I was like, all right, that's fair. <laughs> Clearly, we don't have the same uh, opinions of what is okay. But um, I don't want to work for a company that, you know, disagrees with <laughs> that me refuses that. to acknowledge non-white people. <laughs> oh, my God. But also, I have a burn notice podcast. So, like, if that's going to come up in an interview, which it absolutely will, there needs to be some kind of, like, alignment to what I do. So exactly. if I don't have some kind of, like, procedural or mystery slant to the stuff that I submit to fellowships it gets harder to tie together the threads of my plot line as a personal your, your brand. brand needs to be mysteries yeah exactly and so that's for you it is and it works and it's not like that's the only thing i want to write but i do find that it is easier for me to write them than anything else and it works with my brand and maybe eventually i'll expand but yeah that's kind of the thing i've gone all in on but yeah as i've been watching more mystery stuff i've been really paying attention to sort of the ancillary details and while Mm -hmm. i do enjoy marcella and it's sort of a just befuddling thing that my mom and i are like well we have to know what happens next there's just a lot of stuff in it that i'm like i don't know if this was done well, anyways, let's talk about this. Let's talk about Burnout. Surprisingly not terrible Alfredo Barrios Jr. episode. Exactly. Yeah, the premise of this surprisingly not terrible episode, according to IMDb, is Jesse asks Michael to sabotage a team of corporate spies, not knowing that they are planning a hostage situation. Meanwhile, Sam and Fee turn to an old friend to help gather information about who framed Michael and killed Max. So, like, basically, this episode is Alfredo Barrios Jr. doing bad breaks. And he doesn't do a bad job. I'm just going to say right now. Honest to God. I think it's a strong premise. I prefer this episode to, like, the other hostage situation episode that we had that wasn't bad breaks. The Oh, the one where they, like, crash a safe into the ground because the guy is stealing from charity or something? Yeah, that one was, like, not terribly good. I don't remember what we no, said No, it wasn't it good. Time. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was one of those episodes where, like, Jesse is there <laughs> but doesn't yeah. do anything interesting. I think that's where we started to, like, really dial in on Jesse has to be a distinct addition. He can't just be Michael Weston 
but not Michael Weston. Exactly. So yeah, this is much better than that one. Definitely. Like, let's I enjoyed the weeds this episode, and talk about it in particular. Um, but yeah, let's talk about this episode in the weeds. The weeds. So Michael and Sam break into the warehouse where the guy who framed Michael, which is, you know, different from the guy who burned Michael, but this is now the premise, is hiding out. Sam is very cautious, but Michael is very gung-ho, which is kind of a theme of the episode. However, despite Sam being the more cautious one, Sam trips the security measure, and the guy torches the place and gets away, much to Michael's anger and frustration. Mm-hmm. This is like this reminds me of that other episode where I was, where I was like Michael being too anxious about this stuff or like too gung ho about this stuff should make him make mistakes. Like Sam is the one who's saying you need to be careful. Like Sam shouldn't be the one who's tripping things. Yeah, agreed. But the problem is that Michael Weston, especially in an Alfredo Burger Jr. episode, cannot be imperfect. Cannot be imperfect. And it's just, uh, it's really frustrating. Anyway. Agreed. Yeah, I would love to see Michael Weston make more mistakes. I would love to. Like something that worked for me about last episode that we didn't really get to talk about is the fact that like a lot of the corporate plot line, the, the ostensibly Jesse and Fee case is them not successfully being able to ingratiate themselves and having to like come up with escalations in order to like get access to what they need to get access to and then when plans change they have to improvise and that's always good and like of course that's like the situation that is causing them strife but like it would be really interesting to watch a burn notice episode where specifically michael weston although i'd be happy with another couple things like fucks up a couple of times and his team has to like come together to support him exactly but no he's perfect michael weston can do no wrong except for at relationships but it's fine because we kind of secretly like guys who are bad at relationships because it means they're manly yes and we also kind of don't understand why women are unhappy in relationships so when we try to write it it doesn't make sense (laughs) yeah exactly anyways the thing about this whole arc with like fee and michael where it's like they want to tell a story about like fee and michael having strife in their relationship but like it seems like they fundamentally don't get why fee would be unhappy in a relationship so they're like they're trying to like do all these things so it seems like a weird uncanny valley fight yeah i don't understand any of these emotions at all they don't Makes sense. Nope. Anyway, speaking of Fee, back at the loft, Fee is mad that she wasn't involved in this thing. But Michael and Sam were able to pull a computer from the warehouse that blew up that belonged to the guy who framed Michael. And they, but it's really burned up, but they might be able to get some information off the computer. And Sam thinks he can get help from this friend. The problem is that, like, the friend doesn't actually like Sam all that much. And also, Sam is busy because he has a, he's doing a job for Jesse. I feel like the way that we record these episodes in pairs, like, the show is really kind of helping us with that by, like, taking episode premises in pairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Sam is a job for Jesse. Also, Pierce has found out about the warehouse fire and is already investigating it and wants to talk to Michael. And Michael's afraid that bad shit could come down on Sam and Fee because, like, Pierce is really close. So they decide that they're going to do radio silence. And at which point Sam suggests that, like, you know what? While you're doing radio silence, you can help Jesse with Jesse's job while I go talk to my friend with Fee, and then we won't talk at all. I don't know why, like, it's okay for Michael to get Jesse in trouble with Pierce. But <laughs> yeah, it's very confusing why radio silence is actually necessary. Here's the thing. I'm pretty sure it's only a plot point so that Sam and Fee can have their own plot and not worry about Michael. It's not well done. 
It's not. It's like, yeah. And like recapping this whole scene where they explain all of the bullshit is like so annoying because it's just really random bullshit that doesn't make any sense. But anyway, Michael Cosen meets with Pierce at the place where the bomb maker from last week was killed and says that the bomb maker, Lucian, had a connection with some of Max's old work a decade prior. She asks to see Michael's files on the investigation and will not take no for an answer. Michael's like, you know, yeah, I could get them to you by like Friday. And she's like, you know, tomorrow at the latest. Now, preferably. But Michael gets debriefed by Jesse on the job that, like, Jesse needs. And Jesse is rightly uncertain if it's a good idea to do this while Pierce is, like, possibly about to arrest him. But Michael's like, nah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Literally, don't worry about it. And he's right, because it doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah, Pierce barely factors into this episode. It's very strange. Like, why is she there? Yeah. Just to remind us that she exists. Next week or whatever? I don't know. Anyway, so Jesse's job that he's doing right now is he's posing as a hacker middleman for some hackers that are trying to hack jesse's client who's a big business boy so jesse needs michael to pose as a decryption guide to work for these like corporate spy hacker dudes and i at this point i was really annoyed that i was getting another hacking episode because i hate writing about hacking i hate (laughs) taking notes about hacking thankfully this episode isn't really about hacking but i was very upset at this point in the episode (laughs) <laughs> oh and so also jesse in addition to michael does need madeline because she he needs madeline to take pictures of these corporate spies while they're doing their bad business as proof that they're doing bad business i guess so meanwhile sam shows up at the front door of a guy named jack dixon who is mad at sam because of this one time that sam tased him and put him in the trunk of a car several years ago and while this is have going, we ever met here, this guy before we'll get to this Okay. Uh, while this is going on, Fee breaks into his house and then comically tases him again. <laughs> this scene is written like we've met Dixon before. It feels like it, but we have not. We've not? Di- he's, we have not met Dixon before. He is not in any episode before this. He's not in the fall of Sam Axe. As That's far as really I can strange. tell, this is the first time that Dixon has ever shown up. However, he will go on to be in several episodes after this? He sort of just seems like Barry? He seems like Barry. Like, it's conceivable that just in Sam's, like, normal life before, he would have tased someone and thrown them in the trunk of a car. But it seems like (laughs) such a specific thing. Yeah, and I I was like, I have to ask Chris about this because I I completely missed how we met this dude. Like, we didn't. We never met him. This was how we met him. Right now. But he's... But they like him enough to bring him. There's. It must be something about like the actors because bringing us bring back such a random group of people. Like Carmelo, obviously Sugar's constantly coming back. Like occasionally they'll bring people back, and it's like it's not like they're good actors. No, they're not good. They're not memorable characters. They didn't have any sort of far-reaching implications for the storyline. But yeah, there's no like rhyme or reason to the people they bring back. No. Not, none the, at all. The thing all. that's so weird is it feels like they're treating this character like he's already been at a bunch of episodes. Yeah, it's extremely bizarre. So it's like weird that like they're trying to like backdoor pilot this character into having been a regular the whole time. Like a recurring character. It's like, you know, Jack Dixon, this guy who we've seen so many times. You know, Sam's our buddy friend, Jack. Jack Dixon. <laughs> we're get, from now on, we're going to treat him like he's a regular. Well, not a regular, but like he recurs in a few episodes like he's in like six episodes which is like a lot that is that is a lot of episodes that is more episodes than i would have assumed anyway so jesse 
sets Madeline up outside of a private airport to take pictures of Michael and his new friend Holcomb or Harkum. I think it's Holcomb. I think it's Holcomb. But like for a long period of time, I wasn't sure. And I was kind of just writing both in my notes. Confusing. Like the Burn Notice Wiki said that it was Holcomb. IMDb said that it was Landis. So that was not helpful. (laughs) And I didn't care enough to like double check. Why would you? Why would I? Holcomb is like the head of these corporate spies. And he was try- he's the guy who's trying to hack Big Business Boy. However, Michael discovers very quickly that this is not any ordinary white-collar crime, but is in fact a hostage situation that will result in a kidnapping as Holcomb and his men put up machine guns and take over the terminal. And to make matters worse, one of Holcomb's guys has found Madeline and has brought her in too. We are now in a hostage situation. Holcomb and his guys have machine guns and a grenade? Yeah, they have. They brought a single yeah. grenade just yeah. in case. They have a single grenade like a 14-year-old boy. Yeah, it's it's a very kind of funny detail. It's like we have, it's, all right, we've got all these like guys and one like, grenade. But they, they just have this one grenade. Like, where did they get this one grenade? Like, the thing is, like, they have several they, other yeah, guns. I was going to say, yeah, they couldn't get two grenades. Like, yeah, they have several other guns. Like, it's not like, it's very weird that they have, like, a bunch of guns. Like, they went to an arms dealer and bought guns. And then they have one grenade. Like, he, like threw it in as, like, a special. uncle gave them one. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird. It's a really weird detail. And, like, I'm only mentioning it becomes because it becomes plot relevant later. It, it becomes extremely plot, re- plot relevant that there is a single grenade. It's a single grenade. So it, this is now a hostage situation. So Michael convinces Holcomb needs to take a head count of the hostages and make sure that no one is unaccounted for. And so that if someone was unaccounted for, they might go all diehard on them. So right. during the head and count, I think Michael, I think that that makes sense as a premise, like especially because like they're on like an airfield, right? So like there's yeah. a lot of buildings. Presumably. So like, this is technically diehard too. Sure. Yeah. I, I I have seen Die Hard too. I have no memory of it. It's bad. It's a bad movie. Which is too bad because I love Die Hard. You know, Die Hard's great. Die Hard, Die Hard is great. Die Hard Two is terrible. Die Hard Three is good, and then everything after that's just garbage. Die Hard Four uh, has Justin. Justin Long. Justin Long. Is it the one that also has like Mary Elizabeth Winstead? I think it might. I think because they re- fall in love at the end. But yeah. the, the thing I remember about that movie most is that like it goes full cartoon with the logic of the action sequences. And so there's a scene where Die Hard, Mr. Die Hard himself, dr- I think drives up the ramp of like a now broken highway spiral. Like he's like going He drives up. like a car into a helicopter right yeah yeah well i think he drives it and then he jumps out and he grabs onto the helicopter maybe i don't know something happens where he like launches uh, something including himself at a helicopter it's great i saw it in theaters it was awesome yeah no notes ridiculous zero notes during the headcount, Michael is able to talk to Madeline and tells her that he's going to need her help and puts her in charge of keeping the hostages calm at which point michael invents a guy called Jack Marsden, who's a maintenance guy who is unaccounted for and says that he has an office in the maintenance area. I do like this premise. I like the premise of Michael inventing a diehard. Yeah, I think that it's really fun. fun. It is still very similar to, it's. It, I mean, it's similar to Bad Breaks in that in Bad Breaks, there is like a shadowy guy who like owns the bank or maybe has a vault in the bank. And so like the boogeyman of what this guy is doing from the outside 
is a thing. I like that this is different enough that it gives us yeah. new scenarios. But let's be honest, he's ripping off bad breaks. I mean, yeah. Anyway, so Holcomb sends Michael with one of his guys to check. I do respect that Holcomb never sends Michael anywhere alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's another very... episode example of like, it's good when the bad guys are competent. It's exactly. good when they don't just like trust him out of hand. Yeah, so Holcomb sends Michael with one of his guys to check. The guys have names, I think, but I don't care. Yeah, nobody gives a shit. So, but Michael's able to get the guy away long enough to call Jesse and let him know what's going on. And also ask Jesse to cut a hole in the fence so that the hostages can eventually get out of it. He then rigs a small bomb and also like a little handgun thing and puts the bomb in the trunk of the car that he and the guy used to drive back to the terminal. And it's like a time release bomb. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Sam and Fear are blissfully unaware of this because of radio silence. <laughs> and Sam asks if there's anything going on with her and Michael. And she says... He can't seem to figure out how she fits into his life. And, like, I guess that sort of makes sense. Like, that's true about Michael. Mm -hmm. But, like, again, the show doesn't actually understand what it feels like to be her. No, not at all. So it can't write this. Like, anyway, the cops show up and they they need to, like, gun it because they have a guy tied up in their car who they tased. (laughs) And so (laughs) Phoebe makes a break for it. And this is fun. Meanwhile, Holcomb and the guys are not super buying Michael's story about a diehard. On the loose. So it's a good thing that Michael's bomb chooses that moment to go off. So Michael and the bad guys go outside looking for the Phantom Diehard, and Michael uses his makeshift gun that he made earlier to surreptitiously shoot another one of the guys in the leg. And he's like, oh, there's a guy on the roof or something. It came from over there. <laughs> like, it's not like a gun that he has. It's like, it looks like a magic wand that shoots bullets. Yeah, well, he, 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 there's a spy tip that I'm sure you there's a spy tip. about, we'll like, about a gun tip. is just two things, like a firing yeah. mechanism and a, a, a another exactly. thing. I thought that was clever. It was clever. I did. I thought so, too. Anyway, Michael's able to get away again, and he calls Jesse, who has cut the big hole in the fence, and Michael tells him about how Hoakland is going to kill the big business boy security guards and kidnap him once the plane lands. And so Jesse decides, well, the plane can't land then. So Michael tells Hoakland and his dudes that the diehard is an ex-ranger with explosives experience. Like, he makes up this whole, like, backstory for Marsden or whatever. Jack Marsden. Not James Marsden. But anytime anyone said Marsden, I kept thinking about James Marsden. I know. I actually just went to look at the IMDb trivia for this. I was like, is this a reference to something? It's not. But I did find out that yet another person on this episode is from the show The Pretender. Huh. Similar to Lucian from last episode. So this is like a reunion tour for co-stars of The Pretender. Weird shit. Weird shit. But yes. So Jack Marsden... The Die Hard uh, has all of this training. He's a bad, bad dude. And Michael is really afraid of him because Michael's backstory is that he was, that he invented on the fly was that he was in jail because he was on a bank robbery that went wrong because there was a rogue Die Hard. And so he's like, not going back to jail. He's not going back to jail. <laughs> and so uh, Michael's like, hey, we need to split up and find the Die Hard. And Holcomb's like, no. You and another guy are going to stay with the hostages because, like, you know, he might come back for them and also someone might need to kill them. And also, I don't trust you, Michael Weston, to kill them or whatever your name is. It doesn't matter. This isn't an alias. You don't think he's an alias? I don't think he's an alias enough. Like, he's kind of an alias. I, okay, I will have an argument later, but I don't care enough to have it now. Fair enough. Tabling that. (laughs) 
Meanwhile, Fee and Sam escape from the cops, but there's a problem. The cops were chasing them because Dixon is under house arrest. So Sam offers to get Dixon in the clear if he helps him with their thing. The problem, the police are guarding his computer lab, which they need to get information off the computer, which is the whole reason that they have Dixon. So they work out a plan that requires taking Dixon's ankle bracelet off and muffling its signal. It's also very easy to take this mangle bracelet off. Well, I don't think I don't that know. the hard part is taking the ankle bracelet off. I think the hard part is not letting people know you've taken the ankle bracelet off. Yeah, but it seems like unclear. I guess like at this point, it's already gone off. I suppose it probably like, yeah. It's yeah, it's, it's probably a little, a little too late. Yeah. I don't know a lot about ankle bracelets, even though I co-wrote a book that briefly was about them. Michael uses Madeline to create a scene with the hostages and knocks out the bad guy who's like babysitting him. And they all make for the hole in the fence, but the bad guys get there first, and so they're decided to, like, make for a warehouse instead, while Michael blows up a plane to distract the bad guys. So then Michael heads back and pretends to have been knocked out by the diehard, and saying that, like, Marsden got the hostages free. Worse for Holcomb, they just found out that the plane got diverted, which I think I skipped the bit where, like... Jesse diverted the plane, but Jesse diverted the plane. He went to yeah, like it, a- it's a. It, I I almost totally forgot that that was a thing. I was like, "What is Jesse doing?" I remember he makes a hole in the fence, but I don't think he does anything else. Yeah, he does yeah, go he like to goes airport. to like an air traffic, air traffic control. And, yeah, and like is like I'm FBI. Divert this plane, and the man's like, "I don't know," and he's like, "You should." And the guy's like, "Okay," but yeah, so the plane has been diverted because Jesse did that. It's so Holcomb is very upset. So Holcomb is very upset. And then Holcomb, in a very stunning bit of almost getting there, pulls a gun on Michael and says that he is pretty sure that he and the diehard are working together. <laughs> I thought this was funny. I will give it them this. It was funny. Like, it's reasonable. Like, in a way that it, it does seem a little bit more reasonable than the fact that, like, Michael has totally invented the diehard. Right. Well, it's it like, sort of, it works way better than, like, the, the way that the it happens when they're on the island with Pierce. And Michael's like, what are you going to believe? That this guy ripped you off? Or that an incredible super genius tricked you into, like, coming here or something like that? It's yeah, sort of exactly. like that. But I think this works better. This works so much better because, like, they've done the work. The thing that Michael did is actually more implausible. Mm-hmm. And also he he manages to set it up where like he almost gives himself an alibi because it's one thing to show up in the island and be like, hey, your comms are down. What the fuck? <laughs> and, like in the same way that like Jesse's like, hey, I found a bug in your car. Definitely. Uh, versus this one where Michael has done like his little time thing and like he is there ostensibly doing something else while a big explosion is happening. So exactly. like, it's reasonable for them to be suspicious, suspicious of him, but it's he's also given himself enough of like cover to think, okay, well, there definitely is is another guy but you just might be working with him exactly yeah like that it just plays a lot better it's a lot better yeah anyway so michael tries to convince holcomb but like holcomb doesn't care he wants him dead so michael tells him that fine to prove it to you i'll kill the hostages as proof of my loyalty while you guys escape you'll go away and I'll kill him. I'll definitely kill him. But you guys gotta go now. But Holcomb isn't quite that dumb. So he says that, like, yeah, you can kill him. But one, again, one of my guys is gonna have to babysit you while you kill them. And if you don't kill them, he'll kill you. But he still is, but he's still dumb enough to tell him where their safe house is. Right. Meanwhile, outside of Dixon's lab, there's a bunch of cops. So Fee unmuffles Dixon's angle bracelet signal and then uses that to lead cop on the cops on a chase away from the computer lab. And there's like a funny bit where Fee is like like letting them get closer because she's like, I have to play fair. <laughs> I do like this episode has found a thing that is good, which is 
fast car fee. Yeah. I do enjoy that. I like it when Fee drives a fast car. Fee's got a fast car. (laughs) You like that? I enjoyed that. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, in the warehouse, the hostages are freaking out, and Madeline is starting to lose control. And, like, in particular, there's this one hostage that was, like, a problem before who is, like, really not buying this. And everyone's like, we should just surrender. And Madeline is like, no, we can't surrender. They will definitely kill us. And yeah, there's this one lady who's like very shit. nervous. Like she, like her yes. whole thing is that she's nervous. She's and nervous. This she's is important. Got, like, anxiety it, meds and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was what I was going to say is that it's like, this is, this becomes yeah. important later. Yes. Um, yeah. So like Madeline convinces them though to like hide in the back of the building of the warehouse while uh, Michael and his babysitter are like walking closer to kill them or whatever. And then like they get really close to where the hostages are. And this really nervous woman is like, like, are you sure that this guy is your a good guy? And also your son who is playing them and is actually on our side the whole time, you know, he's conning them. He's a good guy. His name is Michael Weston. He used to be a spy. So Michael gets in, like, a scuffle with his babysitter, and Michael is almost, like, shot, but then Madeline shows up and clocks him with, like, a chair or something, and it is pretty badass. And it's then Michael very good. takes the, the blood from, like, the blood that's coming out of this guy's skull and, like, smears it over his, like, stomach to make it look like he's been shot. And yeah, and Madeline's like, Madeline that does not look very sanitary. And he's like, Mom, sanitary is not the goal here. Yeah. And so then he goes to the other two guys and commit- and tells them, like, it's fine. Like, like you need to get out of here. Like, the diehard got me. I'm going to blow up the diehard guy and all the hostages using your one grenade. <laughs> I, will blow, I will blow everyone up with this single grenade. But you guys need to get out of here. And at this point, Holcomb, like, believes him. And I kind of, like, I buy this more than I have lately. Really? Like, especially what, since, What like, about this works for you? I don't know. I just feel like the show earned it more because of like all the little things that it was doing. Yeah, like, there were there were a lot of good details that built up this relationship. Yeah, and it does look more to the really point where like that, that sells it a little bit too. Because yeah. like it's not like he's asking the guy to do something for him. Like he's saying, "I will do a valiant sacrifice thing," and I feel like yeah. that's a little bit easier to convince somebody to do. Like, hey, and let me do something that, that will save you. Like he thinks he's he's already dying anyway because he's convinced right. them that he has like a bullet wound that he's gonna die from totally so he's like i'm gonna blow everyone up you need to get away and like as holcomb and his guy leave like like holcomb's guy is like i don't know i don't trust this guy and holcomb's like that guy's giving up his life for you he's a good strong man that man michael weston Mm-hmm. But so Michael is able to blow up the grenade safely. Yeah, using um, like uh, office furniture. equipment to like yeah, yeah to like uh, move the blast away. Exactly. That's like there's a spy tip about it. We'll talk about it. But yeah, blows up the grenade safely, and then Holcomb and his guy escape and go back to their safe house. Just time to get arrested by the cops while Jesse and Michael watch. Which like Jesse and Michael also got there very fast. Yeah. Like, I assume the cops got there quickly because the cops were in the area. But, like, also, Michael and Jesse are just there. Yeah, and so Holcomb's like, but we do get a moment of Holcomb being like, ah, oh, you tricked me. You, you were bastard. working with the diehard. I would have loved that if Holcomb was like, that you were working really with the diehard. And, and that like, would have been a Michael Horowitz joke. Exactly. And maybe, maybe even a Craig O'Neill joke. Exactly. 
it would have been good. Alas. Alas. But it was st- it's still fun. Um, but yeah. So afterwards, Fee meets up with Michael, and they each complain about the shitty days that they had. And Fee gives Michael a flash drive with info from the computer, along with the name of the guy who killed Max, whose name I've forgotten, but we'll talk about it next next week, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, and it then, doesn't matter. Then it's time for Michael to take his case files to Pierce, who feels like she's so close to catching the killer. And Michael's like, I don't know. But like, she's very confident. And we kind of end on Pierce's confidence. And that's yep. the episode. That felt like, like a very, sh- yeah, I guess that felt like a very short, like, recap, but I guess not like that much happens. Like, I mean, yeah, it- I mean, I, like, I, again, I kind of like glossed over a lot of stuff that like didn't super matter. And I felt like it was like a real, well, uh, we'll talk about like the pacing of the episode later. I um, guess while we evaluate the episode. Exactly. But first we got to talk about some spy tips. Spy tips. Oh, wait, no. One thing I do want to talk about really quickly, just as we're wrapping up our conversation about like the episode structure, is that something that struck me uh, about this very well plotted episode that Alfredo Barrios Jr. is in charge of is that it's interesting to me how usually and this episode definitely holds it up the way that Michael gains people's like confidence in an Alfredo Barrios Jr. episode is that he shouts a lot. It's about like just sort of confusing people with how much shouting you do and over-masculating them, um, like over-masculining them. Whereas like in a Michael Horowitz script or like some of the other like uh, comedy guys, the con can sometimes be like, uh, oh, I don't know what's going on. I'm just a dumb beta male, like things like that. Like it's I have noticed more that like Alfredo Barrios Jr.'s version of Michael Weston and everyone really in the episode is that they just shout a lot until somebody submits to whatever they want them to do. Did you have you noticed that? Is that I have noticed that, but you know what's interesting about is I feel like this is a thing that is more specifically true about Alfredo Barrio Jr., but I kind of feel like this whole season has been like that. Like, yeah, there been has been a lot how, more like, shouty. Like, yeah, we've been talking a lot about how like the season isn't earning its cons. And that's because a lot of the cons have basically just been like characters shouting. Like mm-hmm. on the island, it was just characters shouting. Yeah, that um, that was exactly the one I was thinking of. Although that wasn't yeah, him. That was um, who was that? Exactly. But I feel like just in general, there's been a lot of like characters shouting. And like even like last week, like Jesse was just like going around shouting at like Spock's dad. Yeah, but he was shout- he wasn't shouting to get people's confidence. He was shouting to kind of just like distract. Like the shouting seemed generally speaking more about a different thing happening elsewhere instead of like the primary mode of convincing. Like had this been the primary mode of convincing, Michael Weston's like do you know a grieving son alias would have just like yelled at him to give him money by this time you know like it would it would have been less about like the restrained crazy build and more that's just true. like straight up aggression and yeah, i think that that says like... a lot about the the nuance of the way that people think that yeah. convincing happens for alberto barrios jr though, the most persuasive thing is a man yelling is that, like that's definitely a barrios hallmark but this episode does not have a lot of alt it doesn't have as it, de- it definitely doesn't have as much of that but it was something that i was thinking about as i was yeah. watching this but it's sort of interesting to see like the things that stick the things that are like kind of core even when you remove all of the other stuff that's like about the family and like 
violence mm-hmm. and like violence and you know this is the only bar the first barrios that we've watched in a long time that's not about family yeah even though madeline is like central to it and something else that just r- r- occurred to me as we were recording this episode is that this is uh barrios's second episode of the season and it's also the second time that madeline has been like literally like a part of the main plot with michael like within the main case of the week yeah, and both of them true. have been Barrios episodes, but this one, she gets treated a lot better, which I appreciated. That's very true. I think so. um, Barrios might be trying to stretch himself, and I appreciate that. We've given him a lot of shit. I appreciate him trying to stretch himself. This is the last episode of the season that he writes, so mm-hmm. we won't get to see if he if he continues this until next season. That's fair. But I appreciate it. I appreciate what you're trying to do with Barrios. Anyway, let's talk about some spy tips. See if we appreciate them. Most commercial security systems use magnetic sensors. When a door opens, it breaks an electrical circuit and triggers the alarm, which means that defeating the system is just a matter of keeping a magnet in contact with the sensor. Unfortunately, very security-conscious people often customize systems with less visible sensors, like a pressure plate in the floor that silently announces your presence and gives whoever's inside a chance to do something about it. Yeah. It's a lot of good stuff there. A lot of good stuff there. And we got to see kind of how they strip stuff out. Yeah, we saw them. Yeah, use the magnet and stuff. It was really cool. To improvise a weapon, you have to understand the basic principle behind whatever you're making. A gun, for example, is just a barrel and a firing pin, while a time delay bomb can be as simple as a corrosive chemical and oxidizing agent and something to keep them from mixing together long enough so you don't blow your hands off. Yeah, useful. This is one that's not useful in like (laughs) my personal life. But I learned something. If you need to redirect an airplane mid-flight and you can't get to the airport, your best bet is probably the local Tracon relay station, T-R-A-C-O-N. Responsible for guiding aircraft until airport traffic control takes over, their job is to keep anything bad from happening mid-flight. Fortunately, their job is also to be nervous, so it doesn't take much to spook them. I actually do think this is useful because I didn't know this existed. I I mean, I I guess it makes sense because, yeah, air traffic control can't be in contact with them the whole time. But presumably pilots need, like, support and updates other times during their flights. So, like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I I don't know how I would personally use this, but I learned a thing. I mean, I don't know why I would personally need to build myself a gun. Exactly. That's fair. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I thought that was good. And like, once again, all of these are sort of like establishing that Bernadette is at its best when Michael Weston has to improvise. Yes, it's very true. Because they are forced, the writers are then forced to like improvise. They can't just like have him plan everything perfectly. Like they have to say, okay, he's stuck at an airport. Like what would be at an airport? How can like he use items from like an airport hangar to build something that will help him in the case? Like it, I just, I find it more interesting and I wish they did this more often. And I also wish that sometimes the improvisation had to happen because he fucked up, which we talked about last yeah. time. Let Michael Weston be imperfect. He already is, but like for reasons that you think make him cool and masculine. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah, that's the thing. I feel like I talk about this with people sometimes where it's like, I wish this character would was more flawed. And they'd be like, oh, no, they are flawed. They do all these shitty things. It's like, yeah, but the... The story doesn't actually think that's a flaw. Yeah, no, I think, and that's a big distinction. And like that, that's something that's come up with Fee before. I know we're we're in the middle of spy tips right now, but like we've only literally been recording for less than an hour. This is going to be such a short episode, so I think it's fine. Um, but yeah. something else, like that, we kind of talked about last episode is that like in a lot of cases, Fee is right in conversation she has with Michael, but very rarely does the show actually think she is. So it's not enough to say like, well, no, Fiona has like agency and blah blah. blah. It's like, no, she doesn't. She makes good points, and everyone. Ignores her. That's different. Exactly. She's just being a Cassandra. Right. And like, 
it's nice that she's making good points, but if that doesn't reflect in the show that like her good points matter, then she didn't really make good points. No. She's just flapping her lips until we get to the next fun, cool, blow up spy scene, you know? Exactly. Uh, anyway, next spy shift. <laughs> Anyone who's used right, a cell phone near an alarm clock knows that even minor interference disrupts radio signals. So if radio silence is your goal, you can create an electromagnet by running the current from your car's electrical system through an, a tire iron wrapped with a copper wire speaker wiring. It's hard on your car's audio system, but it's a small price to pay for staying out of prison. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, I like I like tips that also kind of feel like an episode of Bill Nye the Science Guy or something. <laughs> Wool or silk ties are considered higher quality than the polyester variety. Polyester ties do have certain advantages, however. They are less expensive and considerably more flammable than natural fibers, making them the tie of choice to ignite a gas tank. Yeah. I think that, yeah, that works cool. for me. That's 35, but let's keep going. Let's write yeah. this. this <laughs> let's let's good ride this wave. It's like, I'll put it all on red. Go. In trench warfare, a common practice is to dig a hole called a grenade sump. It works on a simple principle. When a grenade falls into your trench, you kick it into a deeper hole, which directs the force of the grenade upward. The same idea can work above ground with large pieces of furniture. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. thought this was useful. And we got to see him do it. We got to kind of see how the uh-huh. layout worked. No, and totally. it was convincing it from the outside. Good job, Michael Weston. We're really proud yeah, of you. No, it feels like this was a very educational episode of Burn Notice. Totally. Because like, even a lot of times when we get like over five tips, and we only technically have six, but we're a lot of times we're like, yeah, this seems like kind of a good tip. Whereas like, most of these were like, yeah, no, obviously. Mm-hmm. So yeah, five practical spy tips. Good job, Alfredo. Do they do spycraft over violence in this episode? Yeah, definitely. And I think yeah, and I, I think in both cases they do. I mean, Fee does violently kidnap a man who allegedly we know, but will, yeah. I guess, come to know later. But yeah, everything else they do is definitely spycraft and misdirection. Totally. Like, that's the thing is that like, if there's a lot of good spy tips, there's probably going to be a lot of good spycraft. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you wanted to talk to me about the alias. Yeah, so I, I was curious if you thought that Michael Weston creating a different guy that he's like puppet mastering counts as an alias. Can Ooh. James Marsden be the alias? Because he does create this whole like persona background. He's an army ranger. He's an explosives expert. He's on the run and we got to hide. And then like anytime like he's had a, a run in with him and then like he's like, the only way to kill him is with our one grenade. Like, I don't know. I think that he's sort of That's doing true. like... He is doing alias work, but, like, the alias work he's doing is a guy who's afraid of the alias he's created. Exactly. And, like, he's sort of, like, it's like an, it's like a, like, ventriloquism. Exactly. And I, I think that's interesting. I think it's an interesting thing that we haven't seen him do. See, this is, this, I told you, I told you it was going to come back. That's, that's true. You know, you get, you make a good point. And I am definitely going to remember James Marsden. I don't know what his actual name is, but like, or Jack Same Marsden, I think is what it is. I, I'm going to remember that because I think it's a cool conceit. It's a cool device. Yeah, no, I agree. And I thought it was well done too. Like, I don't it think was. that the boogeyman from other episodes is done well because they've done something, a version of this before. I think this is the most interesting start, middle and end of a boogeyman I mean, yeah, ventriloquist like, The alias. fact that he has a name. Yes, exactly. 
And like he hasn't, there's a narrative. I wish him. the name had come from something. I think that would have just been a fun, like final detail, like the same way that we know that Sam found Chuck Finley because he saw it on a magazine cover. Like maybe yeah. Michael sees something on the wall and then later he like holds like up the poster or something. Type thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. But yeah. I think that would have been like a cute detail that perhaps a different writer maybe would have come up with. But like all in all, I find Jack Marsden fun. And I think that Michael Weston does a good job with all him. Right. And I think he, he earned it. You know what? You're right. I'll give you that. Cool. Now, are at least two supporting characters used well? Does Figa to blow something up? I don't think so. I think she just rips apart a car and does a car chase. She rips a car. Yeah. She gets the like, drive We don't even fast. really get to see the car chase, so I don't think that it counts. Yeah, we don't. That's the thing. It's like there's a lot of implied car chases, but not like. <laughs> we ah, need like, to see the car chase. Anyway, and she does. She's definitely not being a co-protagonist here. No, not at all. Once again, she's kind of late. At least she has a little bit more to do this episode than last episode, but she's but been very like much sidelined the past couple of episodes. Is Sam being peak Bruce Campbell? I don't think he talks about his girlfriend. No. Um, he doesn't complain about like he doesn't want to do anything. Please pay for my food and drinks. He has a buddy that hates him. Yeah, it's not <laughs> that's quite not, enough though. Dad, I don't think that's enough. Yeah, I agree. That question is what you're saying. We know that Madeline gets to be part of the case of the week. Yeah, so that's that's a so, that's a lock. Madeline's locked in. Madeline's a lock. So the question is: Is Jesse a distinct addition rather than a redundancy? I mean, he we got this job because Jesse needed to hire some. Like, what, wasn't the conceit that like Jesse was is helping out the billionaire that they're trying to steal from? Um, yes. But like he's got burned, so he needs somebody else to step in to do the actual like ingratiate yourself into the white collar criminal gang. Because, like, I think he said something about, like, I got in with them, but then they needed an encryption expert, and my alias wasn't an encryption expert, so I'm going to bring you in. The thing about this is what's sort of interesting is that, like, this plot technically exists because of Jesse's job, Mm -hmm. but, like, anyone could have given them this job. Like, it's not as if, like, Jesse is using his connections does he use them for the to get the plane rerouted, or does he just lie? No, he doesn't. He he pretends to be like an FBI agent. Oh, you're right. Huh? Yeah, that's a great point. That that's a great sort of reversal. <laughs> uh, like, like, yeah, so like technically it is, but it's like I don't get the sense that like yeah, yeah, because he doesn't have any cool like tech stuff that they get to use and play with. He doesn't no, get to use doesn't. the support of his agency. Like he very much still feels like a free agent. He just happens to like have a legit job that lets him be a free agent. Uh, exactly. But in this particular case, yeah, nothing nothing seems distinct about the fact that it was Jesse's case, other than well, Fee and Sam have something else to do, so let's give Jesse a reason to be in this case. Exactly. Yeah, it's just. It doesn't seem like... And I and I guess technically we don't say that he's a redundancy to Michael. Like right now he's like a redundancy to, you know, one of Sam's girlfriends who will bring them a case. <laughs> or Madeline's mom. Or Madeline's mom. Madeline exactly, bringing them a yeah. case. And like he doesn't do a lot in the episode really. Yeah, he, he goes... That, that was what I was saying. I was like, what is Jesse doing? He's making a hole in the fence that I don't even think they use in the end. I know they... Do they? do they? No, they don't. Because, like, yeah, because they try to yeah, get to don't. that, but then, like, they're too late because the bad guys are, like, in the way. They'll definitely yeah. see them. So then they reroute them to the warehouse and then explode the warehouse. And as the warehouse is exploding, the bad guys leave so they can just, like, peace yeah, out. Then they're fine. Yeah. So, no. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So, yeah. no. Only no. Madeline. However, this episode did have three of the other ones. It did still have three of the other ones. So, so it is still technically. A great episode of Burnout Us. Is it a great episode of television? I don't 
think so because I don't care about the Fee and Sam plot. And that takes up enough of the episode that like it I would does. need You're to right. care about it's that. It's like not I like the like, Michael Weston stuff. That whole I setup like is Weston really, stuff. really fun. I do think like, yeah. I think what would have maybe taken it over the edge for me is like if there'd been more about Michael and Madeline or something. Right. Like, I mean, no, I I, like Michael and Madeline could have been fine, too. But like if half of the plot is uninteresting, they're just sort of wandering around with this guy we've never met. Half the plot. It's like a third. Well, it's the other case. It's the spy case of the week. It is the spy case. But it's also like, yeah, it's boring. But like, there's not a lot of it. I mean, I agree that that makes it not a great episode of television. But I'm also saying that like, I think that the A plot is also slightly lacking. Like That's fair. Yeah. So like, even if the B plot had been interesting, you still would have wanted more from the A plot. I think like, yeah, I think all of the like, mechanical stuff of it is good. It's one of the reasons that I think that Bad Breaks is a great episode of television is that like, Michael and the other guy in it have such a good arc. Bly. Yeah, learning to trust yeah. each other. Yeah, and, like, technically that sort of happens in this episode with, like, Holcomb or whatever, but, like, we don't care about Holcomb. Holcomb's getting arrested. So like, Yeah, we don't have a pre-existing don't, don't relationship a... with him, and it doesn't actually matter if they get along yeah. outside of this. Like, the whole reason that Bly is interesting is because Bly has overreaching, like, potential harm or help in Michael's exactly. life outside of the case of the week. Exactly. So, like, and they have a history, so, like, they're working through their history – Right. And and he like like he and he's also there to be the antagonist when a bigger antagonist shows up. Exactly. Which is an interesting subversion. The enemy of my yeah. enemy is my friend kind of a thing. So like, yeah, like there's a story there. There's like a narrative. Right. Like a lot of a lot of like episodes of Burn Notice have like a plot but don't really have a story. That's a good distillation. And that's something that we've definitely been tracking this season. Uh, and yeah. in like the last Barrios episode, it was like, well, there's a story here. We hate it. <laughs> We hate it. Right? There's a story. Whereas this one, just, it kind of feels like there's a lot of plot and not like a story. Exactly. And so I don't think it could be a great And the plot is good. I enjoyed the plot. No, I did enjoy the plot a lot. I <laughs> I enjoyed the plot a lot. The plot a lot. The plot a lot. Plot a lot. A lot. Yeah, no, I think bit. that, like, in order for this to be great an episode of television, it has to have more story. Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, is there anything else that you feel that you need to say about this episode? No. So do you think that next season is or next episode is going to like bring the Max investigation to a close? Because we're mid season now. We're like we're technically one episode past mid season. And I was expecting one is, of these episodes to like conclude something. Well, the thing is, I, I think this all ran it. I don't think there's a break. Or there's a I don't break, think so like either. Later. And so like it's just a gradual. If there is a break, then like it's like a very like lopsided break. Which does happen sometimes, but like, can I also say this is the fewest great episodes of television up to this point so far? Because even in season one, there was a great episode of television, episode six, and then episode eight. Season two oh, wow. had three great episodes before this point in the season. Uh, season three had also had three, and then season four had four. But we are now oh, wow. on episode ten of season five and we have only had one great episode of television oh no so this episode this the back half of this season has a lot to deal with next episode is lisa joy which is exciting we do like lisa joy we do like lisa joy it's her only episode then we've got uh some jason tracy some matt nix some and like just our our other good boys but like lisa joy is the last person who like we (laughs) generally like really trust with great episodes of burn notice and like also great episodes of television so i'm a little nervous like has burn notice peaked 
I mean, uh, what I will say is that, like, and something you and I said off mic while we were waiting for our various, like, sound problems to go away, is that, like, the episodes this season have been much shorter, which you listeners have doubtless heard. Um, and I think the I will episodes say that of, some- like, our podcast, not... <laughs> yeah, our podcast episodes are, like literally shorter and I will say that like some of it is that I'm trying to be conscious because I'm staying with my mom and maybe when I'm living on my own again and I don't have the time limits of like my mom goes to bed at 5 p.m. basically to like you know keep me going but also we were talking about how like even the like fine like the the even the the bad episodes this season aren't like terrible and there's not a lot to talk about like most of the episodes this season have been competent we have enjoyed them but there isn't really a lot going on and no, i not. i feel like that reflects where burn notice is because like the big you know shadowy corporation is gone allegedly um i still think that something related to the burn notice is going to come back because it was hinted earlier in the season but like you know, the big driving force of burn notice is over. Michael Weston is living with his girlfriend, uh, even though they're having some problems, like it all feels fairly low stakes. And even like Max dying, we don't care about this dude. (laughs) So like, you know, it sucks that it's sort of like last episode where it's like, I mean, bummer, dude, you're being framed for murder. But like, it doesn't seem like it's it has the same scale. Yeah, like like being burned. The the man who framed Michael it feels less interesting than the man who burned Michael. And it feels a lot less personal too, because like, and it has fewer like effects on his life. Like what made the burn notice plot, you know, for better or worse, better than this is that like, it forced him to stay in Miami. It forced him to not be able to go anywhere. So like anytime they needed to go off, like out, outside of the state for, um, for like a mission, it like had to be under the cover of darkness and they had to like smuggle him out or he just straight up couldn't leave. So like there was uh, in the same way that we were just talking about like bad breaks versus this episode, like the, the reason that the burn notice mattered at all is because it had more implications beyond like this one part of his life like if he gets successfully framed he doesn't get to go to the the cia anymore you know and then he'll have to like be more on the run i guess but like it doesn't really feel like it's going to be that bad no it doesn't like his life doesn't seem like it feels like a lot of plot and not a lot of story Mm -hmm. and i you know this kind of feels like a college season you know like kind of does Because, like, we now have slightly new living situations, like, some stability has been added in, like, Jesse has a job again, Fiona's living with him, so, like, it's it's like a college season or, like, a post-marriage season after, like, a will-they-won't-they couple finally get together. And, like, I don't think Fee and Michael were ever will-they-won't-they. It was always, like, (laughs) when-will-they? But, you know, it's like after, you know, Jim and Pam get married. For a while, they don't really know what to do with that interaction anymore, because, like, well... The the success metric has been reached. You know, Fee and Michael live together. Everything seems fine there. Jesse has his job back and isn't mad at Michael anymore. That's fine. Sam has has a girlfriend again. So, like, things are kind of generally going well. And I don't think that's necessarily a problem. But I think that in a lot of TV seasons, that's where they have to start to kind of reinvent themselves. And I don't think that they have successfully pivoted to a new equally high stakes thing. The thing about this is that, like, the thing that we liked about the last season was them successfully pivoting. Like, Jesse was a successful pivot. I agree. Yeah. Because it did kind of feel that way. Because, like, after three seasons of Burnt Out's plot, it did feel a little bit more like a different thing. I think we were b- both kind of hoping that they would learn from Jesse how to do a better job at that kind of thing. Yeah, um, and I think and the other struggle... like a regression. 
Yeah. Well, and I think that the other struggle and the reason that like season one and two Bernard has kind of struggled is that like the shadowy figure who's like fucking up Michael's life is just that a shadowy figure. And so like the villains that we always like are the ones that we know about. Like Gilroy was really interesting. Jesse was really interesting because like we knew who they were and like we we had to like figure out how to work within their rules to try and like win. But in this case, it's just some random person who has set Michael up and like we yeah. don't have any emotional attachment to the villain. We have no context for them. So it just feels very abstract. It doesn't feel as and personal. Like, I can tell that they're trying to do it with Pierce, but it's not working as well. No, she seems very she seems lovely. She seems <laughs> like lovely. She, even when she's like like a hard ass like no you'll get it to me tomorrow or like hmm if you were the killer Michael what would you do it never really feels like Michael who's in danger of being found out no. by her you know like the season starts with him destroying a murder weapon you know it's a high stakes start to the season but now it just sort of seems like they're becoming pals <laughs> and like she's like you're sort of weird maybe something's up with you but largely yeah. it does I don't feel the danger of like her finding them out no, exactly. I know exactly. But like, you also don't feel enough of a com- camaraderie between them. Because the thing about like Jesse is that like, part of it was that there was a danger that Jesse was going to find out about them. But also, it was the sense that like, there was this lie, like Michael had done a thing. Right. Yeah, it wasn't like, just that like, you know, they might be in trouble if they're found out. But it's, they might hurt their friend who they now kind of care about. Exactly. And I think they're trying to do that with Pierce. Yeah, but we, like, like, yeah, the only full episode we've spent with her was the um, the island adventure. And even that, we didn't really get anything from no. her other than like, wow, is this what it's always like working with you guys? And, the, and there's this thing with like Pierce, right? Like when Michael burned Jesse, Michael burned Jesse. Like Michael didn't kill Max. He is making no. it harder to find Max's killer. I guess like mm-hmm. he... But it doesn't like, matter because we also didn't care about Max. Yeah, and it's like... The crime scene, like, and I'm yeah, still mad that like, we never did anything with Diego's scene, murder. That's not like the same. <laughs> we as like Diego, Jesse. Yeah, yeah. You, actually, no. I want to talk about Diego because Diego, the guy that was murdered in like season two, who like you and I just like was were obsessed with. Something I did think worked about Diego is that Michael was like actively making his job harder and like was kind of putting him in danger by associating him with him, and I think had they done more with Diego's murder instead of just sort of like going to left field and all of a sudden boogeyman uh, Mensa genius Simon came out and then did nothing forever. Um, I think that like that was, that would have been a more effective use of what they're trying to do here because like, even though Michael didn't kill Diego, he implicitly got him killed because like he was kind of, you know, he was, he was trying to get back into the CIA too quickly. He wasn't letting the guy work his signals. And he was like, Hey, I know you don't want to help me, but I'm forced you to help me and like exactly. that there's like a direct michael fucked up again yes. you want michael to fuck up like michael did nothing wrong yeah he just came all. to see his friend at the cia and then oh no he's dead yeah and it's like yeah and the thing is like not only that not only did michael do nothing wrong but he is being wronged mm-hmm. and so like the whole thing with like pierce just doesn't play yeah agreed yeah he hasn't like like, we don't care about her. They don't have a pre-existing relationship. And it's not just about, like, well, his new CIA handler might not let him into the CIA. Like, it should al- there should also be a level to her where it's like, exactly. you know, we care about her. And I, I maybe they were trying to do that with the with the Island Adventure episode where she's like, my fiancé is dead. Or I guess we learned that earlier. And that's it's mentioned yeah, like, again. Like, but it's like, I don't care about your fiancé I've never met. Like, I don't who died, think- like, eight years ago. Get over it. Yeah. 
I don't think like the problem is the character. Like it's just like they don't do anything with her, and we we they don't we, do anything with her. You can't hang the plot. They're not like hanging well, the plot on her, well. right? Well, and also Jesse like lived with Madeline for most of the season, so exactly. like there were there was also like, and I think that also really worked because the the sort of function that Madeline frequently plays in the show is like being sort of the moral like non spy person to be like, hey, I know you guys have like a mission going on, but what the fuck. And like, exactly. and it, 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 we always feel like it comes, it, it plays false coming from Fee because it, you know, Fee is one of the boys. Uh, but like Madeline having Jesse live with Madeline and them just having conversations about like his hummus and like, you know, his, like stuff like that, like that brought out a lot and allowed her to kind of ground them in, hey, this is fucked up. You can't do this to Jesse. Like he is exactly. now my surrogate son. And so like, I'm not saying that we you know we need Pierce to live with Madeline, but like for God's sake. Want exactly like a retread. Mm-hmm. But like the, what made Jesse. that effective were the elements of there was a personal stake for the gang yes. in terms of like lying to this new person, especially if they're going to be like, around. They didn't understand why Jesse worked. Exactly. Because it feels like they actually are trying to redo Jesse, but without understanding why that worked. Exactly. A hundred percent. Anyway. Anyways, um, <laughs> that's the end of the episode. That's the end of the episode, unless you've got anything else to say. No, um, I, I, I think we've vamped for long enough. I, I think, yeah, I think we have. I'm enjoying this season of Burn Notice, but it's not as good. And that's bumming me out. But we, you know, mm-hmm. have two more seasons. God help us. God help us. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if God is there to help us. But Vincent Yell is there to give us our theme music. So thank you, Vincent Yell. If you want to hear more from Vincent Yell, go to vincentyell.bandcamp.com. And until next week, until you go and listen to Vincent's music, bye. Hi, Ben Watkins. I hope you're listening to our show now that you're a follower of ours on Twitter. Sorry we said you had a weird fetish. Okay, bye. We're not kink shaming, to be clear. <laughs> no, we're shaming you specifically for a totally separate thing. Separate thing. It's not about your kink. Buy me a house. It's it's <laughs> yeah. Buy us a house, please. We need a guest house as well. Buy me a house and buy me a smaller house. That's another smaller house next to the house. <laughs> <laughs>